Hey everybody and welcome to the Hack My Homestead podcast. This is Sean Mills and today is March 3rd, 2023. I don't normally do a Friday show, but this is episode 20 and uh, I'm getting ready to go on vacation for about a week and I just, for whatever reason in my brain, I said, you know what, I want to get episode 20 out before I leave. So decided to go ahead and do kind of a round robin type show today. Uh, We are going to talk about homestead uh, technologies, kind of homestead utilities, but we are not going to talk about solar photovoltaic. Uh, So I know a lot of my shows are about the solar photovoltaic, about solar panels and inverters and battery banks and stuff like that. But today we're going to stay away from that topic and we are going to focus primarily on the other utilities in the homestead and things that uh, you hopefully if your PV system is up and running with your battery backup, uh, these are the other things that we need to deal with. We've talked a little bit about rainwater catchment. Uh, so I'm going to start there and just cover a few items. Uh, and then I'm thinking we'll talk about some options for space heating. We'll talk about some options for water heating. Uh, and then anything else that I might think up in the next, uh, call it 20 minutes or so. So starting with rainwater catchment, um, one of the things that people always get kind of weird about is, is, well, what happens if a bird poops on my roof and, uh, you know, and then a week later it rains and, and now I've got the bird poop residue in my, um, storage tank. And, and while that is a thing that does happen, the likelihood of there being live bacteria in week old bird poop that gets into your uh, cistern or whatever catchment system that you're using finds other food sources and begins to proliferate in your water system makes it through uh, your um, whatever internal um, filtering systems that you have and then makes you sick is ridiculously low. Uh, As a matter of fact, you're probably more likely to have contaminated well water than you are to have contaminated water coming in off your roof. Now, I will tell you that two issues that happen probably more than you'd, you'd want to think about if you're doing rainwater catchment is uh, critters getting into the um, getting accidentally washed into the cistern, and so you got you have to make sure that you've got some technology for you know, preventing those things from, from accidentally getting washed in what they might be in your roof, on your roof. You know, you might have a salam or a, a lizard on your roof, or you might have a small spider in your gutter when the rainstorm happens. Right. So, uh, that is not a, a, a typical issue, uh, but it's something that can actually happen. Uh, and so you definitely want to make sure that you've got some good, um, you know, barriers. And, and so what we have is we have a, uh, first flush diversion system, which is just basically the water can't get to the cistern unless I've gone out and actually manually closed, uh, some, um, uh, let's just call them valves for lack of a better term. Um, so I have gutters on either side of the house and the bottom of those gutters are open. And then about uh, a third of the way to a half of the way up the house 
from the ground, those gutters are um, piped over to the cistern. So what I'm saying is that there's it's impossible for the water to get to our cistern from our roof unless we've gone out and actually plugged the bottom of that gutter system. Uh, and I've got special plugs that go in there. Uh, and so typically what we do, and then we've also got a mesh filter at the top of each downspout. Uh, so that keeps out the vast majority of any stuff that we might have that gets into the rainwater. We've got our first flush diversion system. So again, anything that gets through that mesh and gets into the uh, pipes is going to be flushed out through the bottom. And then anything that gets through the pipe or into the pipe does not get flushed out of the bottom uh, and somehow winds its way up into the pipes that go over to the cistern. We have an additional mesh filter in the cistern where the input comes in uh, to catch anything. And we very rarely find anything in uh, that mesh. That's kind of like our check to see whether our first flush diversion system is working the way it's supposed to. Uh, and it normally is almost always working the way it's supposed to. And so, you know, what's the trade-off there? Well, the trade-off there is when it's raining, sometimes I have to go outside in the rain and, and plug those holes. I'm fine with that. Um, that to me is a better solution than any other first flush diversion solution that I've looked at. But it means that, for example, when it rains and I'm not in town, you know, when I'm when the, me and the family are visiting uh, friends or family out of town or we are on vacation and it rains, we're just not collecting rainwater. Uh, and that's okay. Um, one of the things that we probably should do uh, that we've thought about, we haven't actually implemented yet, is taking the first flush diversion water and aiming that somewhere strategic, putting that somewhere where it can be more useful than just generally around the house. I uh, haven't done that yet, but uh, that's definitely something that we've thought about. And on one side of the house, it's easier to do that than on the other side. Um, so we'll probably do that side first. Uh, but yeah, that's that's something that, uh, you know, we, we've, we filter the water multiple times before it gets into the cistern and then filter it multiple times after the cistern before it actually becomes drinking or cooking water for us in the house. As I think I've mentioned before, our process for, for storing the water at grade level, which allows us to use a one-tenth horsepower pump to pressurize the house instead of the three-horsepower deep well pump. But we also have that deep well pump plumbed so that in the event that we have a drought, we can use that deep well pump to pump water up into the cistern and then let the rest of the, the system work the way it's going to work. So let's talk a little bit about hot water heating. So once we get the water filtered and it's into the house, uh, rainwater is the softest water out there. So you don't have to worry about, um, you know, mineral buildup in your, um, in your appliances the way that you do with well water, for example. Uh, now, some people say, well, that create, it doesn't create a health issue, but it eliminates potential health benefits from your mineralized well water. Um, so, you know, if that's something that's important to you, that's something to consider. You might want to have some sort of supplement uh, that you take if, if you would otherwise get some, some of those trace minerals from your well water. But 
what that does mean is that your appliances in your house last a lot longer. Uh, dishwashers last longer. Hot water heaters last longer. Washing machines last longer and so on and so forth. You don't have to take your shower head apart as often to clean it out because you don't have stuff built up in there. And so, um, so what are some options for heating your hot water? Well, the one I prefer, the one I think is the easiest, but it does require an outside input, is a propane or natural gas on-demand water heater. That has been the easiest thing for us to manage. It does not use very much propane at all. And if you're judicious about your hot water usage, then that is a much more effective way to deliver hot water than to have a 80 to 120 gallon tank that you keep hot all the time just so that you can use it every now and again. So when you think about one of those tank water heaters, you know, the way that works is that it's got a thermostat and, and the heater's job is to keep the water inside of that tank at whatever that set temperature is on the thermostat. And it's an insulated tank and those are pretty well insulated, um, but they're not so insulated to where all the heat stays in there. So you're going to lose heat and then you're going to replace that heat with whatever uh, heat source you have, whether that be propane, natural gas, or electricity. And think about the number of hours in a day that you're not using hot water. My guess is, is that number is in excess of 20 hours. Now you might be the kind of person who takes a shower and then immediately goes into the kitchen and starts washing dishes. And as soon as the dishwasher has done running its cycle, you start washing clothes and maybe you do five hours worth of laundry every day. And then the kids come home from school and soccer practice and they're taking showers. And yeah, maybe you're, you're in the, the 0.1% of the population that's going to use more than four hours a day of hot water. But most people are going to be in the 22 to 23 hours a day that they're not using hot water. So why pay to heat your hot water for the 23 hours a day you're not using it? Okay, this is not meant to be a commercial for an on-demand water heater, but that's the strategy. Now, the other side of the coin is that when you are using an on-demand water heater, you are instantaneously heating a set amount of water up significantly. And so whereas a, um, a tank heater is going to kick on, let's say you got your tank heater set at 120, you know, it's going to kick on at 115 and it's going to kick off at 125. And then it's going to wait for several hours until the heat dissipates out and that's going to do it again. Right. And so you don't need a, a significant amount of heat delivered instantaneously to do that. But you do when you've got a gallon a minute or three gallons a minute, being heated from 55 degrees to 120. And so that's something to think about. Uh, if you are, if you have electric on-demand water heaters and you're on a solar system with battery backup, that's absolutely something that you want to think about. You, you know, I'm not saying that you can't do it because you absolutely can. I've designed systems for people with electric on-demand water heaters, but we have to understand that that is a significant draw all at one time for a short period of time. And that's something that the system has to be able to design to handle. So I like the idea of the propane on demand water heater. I also like the idea of preheating that water. If you use a lot of hot water, 
I like the idea of preheating that water by running it through a solar thermal collector. And then let's say you have an old tank water heater, then you could use that tank water heater to store that preheated water and then use that to run through your on-demand heater. So now instead of heating from 55 to 120, maybe we're only heating from 90 to 120. Uh, that is the exact system that we put in at uh, Nicole Sauce's house uh, during, I think it was the second uh, LFTN or Living Free in Tennessee workshop. And that system is still in place to this day. And she figures that she paid for that system, the cost to install it, uh, she recouped in avoided propane cost. I believe she said in the first year, but definitely 100% within the first two years. And that's the kind of payback that you get from solar thermal applications. Photovoltaics take longer to pay back just because electricity is so cheap and the efficiency of the solar panels is what it is. But the actual... Uh, solar thermal where we're using the radiant heat of the sun to do work for us uh, those paybacks are very very quick so th solar thermal um, water is typically two years or less and solar thermal air heating is typically one year it depends on you know the exact application but most people find that if they put in a solar uh, air collector uh, and, and a little bit of power to get that working in the house, that that gets paid for uh, very, very quickly, like within a few months normally. And, and so let's go on to that. Let's talk about air heating. So obviously uh, my preference is wood. I love wood heat. Uh, I love the idea of not even considering a homestead unless there's a wood lot that you can manage uh, so that you can get all of your heating requirements out of that wood lot. And you will hear me tell people or say on the podcast at times that heating, living in a heating climate is easier for going off grid than living in a cooling climate because there are lots of things that produce heat and very few things that produce cold air uh, for cooling your house down. And so the basically the only way outside of, you know, you, there are some areas where you could use a swamp cooler, but in most areas, the way to actually uh, cool a house is going to be with, you know, air conditioning. And that air conditioning requires a lot of electricity. And so if you're going solar, that's just something to, to consider. But Heating, you can use propane for heat. You can use natural gas for heat. You can burn anything that's combustible for heat. Uh, I have seen stories of people who built a rocket mass heater uh, stove for their dwelling and literally heated their entire house for an entire winter. And I believe this was in Montana with junk mail, right? Only junk mail that was mailed to them. And so I think that is a, a, an awesome idea. Um, and, and, but just one idea of the, you know, you could burn anything that's combustible to, to create heat. And so the other things that you can consider um, when you are burning things for heat is that you can use that for radiant heat uh, for your area. 
you can also use that to create other things that require heat. So for example, and this is an obvious one, if I have a wood burning stove, I can cook things on that stove while I'm uh, using it for heat. I can make biochar in the body of the stove while I'm using it for heat. I can preheat or even all of the way heat hot water. Now heating hot water with a wood stove, while it's absolutely doable, there are some safety issues. And I'll probably do a, a special uh, standalone podcast on how to safely do um, wood burning stove um, water heaters because you can create bombs. Uh, I actually lived in a house. We didn't do it. The people that lived there before us did it. But uh, where there was a water bladder in a stove and apparently the pressure safety relief valve stuck and they had this thing going and did not realize that they had the water um, piped in or, or on, I guess it would say. They didn't realize that there was water in the water bladder and it heated up and turned into steam and that steam began to create pressure and eventually that pressure blew every fitting uh, now, it didn't blow the fittings that were inside the tank, oddly enough, but every fitting within about seven feet of the wood-burning stove itself blew out. And I remember when we were living in the house, we came home uh, and there was a, you know, a bunch of water in the house. And we're like, what the heck is going on with this? And uh, called the landlord and I said, hey, I don't, we've got a water leak somewhere. I, you know, it seems like it was coming from the hot water heater. So I turned the hot water heater off, the you know, the water supply, but I'm not sure what's going on here. Um, this house had, was actually plumbed. There were three different water heaters. Two were preheaters, and then you had the main actual water heater. And it turns out that one of the ball valves that was preventing water from going down into that pipe that fed the water bladder, um, I guess, failed or was leaking or something. And then it froze while we were out of town because this was the, the pipe was in an exterior wall. Um, and when it froze, it pushed that um, that fitting for that ball valve out. And then the water basically just drained until, you know, until we show actually it drained until the uh, the power went out in the neighborhood because of the the storm, that, the winter storm that had come through. And um and then when we got home, we just had the standing water. But it was funny because our landlord at the time, this is when we lived in Indiana, uh, really cool guy, you know, still keep in touch with him to this day. But he was absolutely convinced that we were using that water bladder for um, for hot water and that we had, you know, that we were the cause of the issue. And I'm like, Mark, um <laughs> A, it happened when we were out of town, and B, I literally work in boilers for my day job. Like, I literally go to work in places that create steam, superheat that steam, and use that steam to generate electricity. There is no way in hell I would ever put that in my house. I know better. (laughs) I know all it takes is one valve to stick and you've created a steam bomb in your house. There's no way I would ever use that. And I actually told him that when he showed it to me 
when we were like checking the house out before we moved in, he's like, Oh yeah. And you can use this for hot water. And I'm like, you'll never see me do that ever, 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 ever. Um, I know better, (laughs) but yeah, when we took that wall apart and discovered, uh, that that was what was causing the leak, that it was the piping that went down there. He was absolutely 100% convinced. And as a matter of fact, he considered basically backcharging me for the cost of repairing that wall. And I think, I, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't think he ever really believed that we didn't do it. I just think that he felt like maybe that was a battle that was best left unfought. Um, but I remember like the look on his face when he was like, Oh, this is, this, this happened because you guys were using the hot water. And I'm like, Nope, absolutely not. This is because your previous people didn't know what the hell they were doing. Uh, and I know exactly what this is and would never use it, would never use it in a house that my family lives in. So that being said, I will do, now that I've talked about it so much, I will do a standalone show on how to safely do uh, a hot water um, system on your wood stove. Uh, we might, we might, you know, I might take a few weeks to put that together. Again, I'm off next week. I am going to be recording some content and getting it out to you. But before I wrap up, let's talk about solar thermal air collectors. And so literally all this is, is just imagine a black box or a box that you paint black and you put glazing or glass over the top of it. And then you pump cool air in the bottom and hot air comes out the top. That's what it is. There's a lot of different ways to collect that heat. You've seen people use gutters. I've seen people use, you know, cans with the tops and the bottoms cut out of them. Um, There has been some pretty decent testing done on this. Three layers of black screen is the, um, it's the way to go. Uh, it's, It's something about the sun heats up the screens and then the air moves from behind the three screens through the three screens to the exit port. Uh, so you kind of angle the screens up in the front and down in the back. And the input is in the front and the output is in the back. And so the air has to go through all three screens uh, in order to exit. And that payback, um, I, I think the guy said that if you're living in a place where you're using fuel oil for heat, the payback for that system in terms of BTUs and in avoided uh, fuel usage is about a week. If you're using natural gas or propane, it's about a month. And if you're using electrical heat, uh, like a heat pump, I think it's something like two months. Uh, they're very cheap and easy to build. Uh, they work very well. There's, it, it, I mean, you know, the only problem is, is that you got to have enough glass to get the, the air through. Uh, now, you could build this outside and basically pipe air from inside the house through the thing and then back into the house. Uh, a lot of people don't want to do that. But I have seen systems where people have just built massive solar thermal collectors like behind their house, like almost like a solar panel array, and then piped that air into the house and just use like computer fans uh, to move the air. And and it absolutely works. I think I saw a picture of a guy or a, a video of a guy in Maryland that 100% of his heating for the winter came from a big solar array that he put in his backyard. Uh, but it's very, very simple. You're, all you're doing is you're creating a place for heat to be collected. It's collecting the solar thermal uh, radiant heat, and then that heat gets transferred through some sort of medium. Again, that could be a screen. It could be a Coke can painted black, or it could be a, 
a, a, an aluminum gutter. Uh, that's the thing that transfers the heat to the air moving through it. And then the air coming out the other side is hotter than the air that went in. And so at some point I'll probably do a YouTube video, um, you know, judging by my schedule, I would say this summer is when I will probably get the YouTube, uh, portion of the podcast up and going, uh, on the, on the content creation right now, I'm just focusing on the podcast, focusing on the consulting work and at at the time that it is appropriate and I have enough time to work on it, which typically for me is summer. Summer is kind of a, um, it's not really downtime, but it's the downest time that I have combined with the fact that this summer, um, our older daughter, Ashley, her schoolie should be complete by then. So the free time that I'm utilizing to work on schoolie, I'll have back. And, uh, I think that this summer is when I'll start actually doing some, uh, some YouTube stuff. So with all that said, I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you guys for joining me. Send me emails at Sean, S-H-A-W-N at hackmyhomestead.com. And we'll talk to you next time.